Welcome to the Multidimensional Evolution Podcast. I am Kim McCall. The premise underpinning discussions on this podcast is that life extends beyond the physical dimension, that death is not the end of life, that we're all connected energetically with each other, both in the physical dimension and across dimensions, and that there is a purpose to our life that involves growth, healing and assistance to each other. I aim to have conversations to expand your consciousness, help you reconnect with your essential self, and live life as an integrated, multidimensional human being. But given the subject matter, a request. Don't believe in anything, including what is shared here. Experiment, have your own experiences, and always use discernment. The musical introduction to this episode is by Finnish fusion artist Axel Teslev, and this song is called Reincarnation. My guest today is Alfonso Colasuono, who spoke with me from his home in Baltimore on the east coast of the US. Alfonso is a professional writer and the co-author with Vakasha Brenman of the book of the magical mythical unicorn. This is not really a topic I thought I'd be talking about on this podcast, but the subject matter piqued the interest of my anthropology geek side, which includes research into the variety of life forms that either inhabited this planet a long time ago, exist in other dimensions, or maybe both. As it turned out, I really enjoyed getting into some of Alfonso's own multidimensional experiences, including with a unicorn, as well as discussing the historic evidence and geographic spread of those creatures in the record. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Alfonso, thanks for coming on. And um, yeah, I'm, it's not, not a topic I would have thought I would be bringing onto this podcast, but I'm actually really um, looking forward to talking to you about uh, unicorns. Uh, Kim, it's a pleasure to be here. And uh, yeah, I'm really looking forward to talking with you about unicorns as well. So, you know, you kind of, the, the book title, when I saw it, uh, when it got, you know, was sent to me um, by your publisher, I, uh, it kind of piqued my, my anthropological interest, right? So usually on this podcast, um, the focus here is, is tends to be more on things like out-of-body experiences, past lives, kind of energy work, you know, those sort of themes, um, and, uh, but I have also have a, an interest in, um, I guess people call it mystical, uh, mythical animals, right? There's kind of, which, which I tend to interpret as a, um, uh, perhaps, a, a non-physical continuity of life that, uh, once existed, right? And, um, you know, as I mentioned before, we started recording our work in Aboriginal communities and uh, there are many different beings that people talk about as very real um, beings that populate the, our, our country in a non-physical way, although sometimes maybe, maybe it is even physical and, and we don't see it. But, but so, yeah, so that's where my interest comes from. And I thought, well, it'd be interesting to have this, this chat about unicorns. And so, yeah, I'd be curious to start with to understand, um, you know, how did your interest come about in something that's fairly esoteric like that? Well, um, I've always had a real interest in things of a paranormal and esoteric nature. Uh, one of the earliest memories I have of my childhood was picking up um, this book on the paranormal from during a family gathering and just going off into a guest room 
and um, just delving in right into uh, that book and soaking in um, all this information. Um, but unicorns were one of the uh, few real holes in terms of my knowledge base um, on these subjects. And um, so right before I started work with Vakasha Brenman on the book of the Magical Mythical Unicorn, um, I've been working on two other projects. Um, one was a project um, with Jeff Spitalnik, uh, basically creating an iOS um, app. Um, the other was a, pr a project called Old Forgotten Art Found, um, where we were we had um, some evidence of art that was stolen by the Nazis during World War II, and uh, we were trying to um, create a global expedition to recover the art, uh, working with researchers, working with international law enforcement and others. But um, we ran into some challenges with fundraising, and so that project uh, was put on hold. Uh, I hope to do that in the future, but right now it's still on hold. Um, so I was kind of a writer without a project, and um, I went to uh, an energy healer that I had uh, started going to a few years before, a woman by the name of uh, Stephanie Erdang in New York City. And um, Stephanie had seen my co-author uh, fairly recently before that visit, and she and and Vakasha was looking for a writer, and I was a writer looking for a project. And so Stephanie played matchmaker for us. And uh, when I first met Vakasha, I immediately uh, knew we could connect both on a personal and a professional level. And, um, and yeah, I was just really curious about learning more about the unicorn because I knew almost nothing about it when I started. But it was, it was very fascinating to me because um, when Vakasha, in that initial conversation, she told me just about how global a, a creature it's been in terms of um, the history and legends and how it permeated every spiritual, every major spiritual tradition, um, every, every time period of the last 6,000 years of known civilization. And I, I was really curious because as far as I knew, I thought the unicorn had some sort of connection. I didn't even know exactly how to British culture. And I didn't think that it had really anything to do um, with anything else outside of that context. And Vakasha just basically said, you know, you're, you have a lot to learn. And she gave me a, a stack of research that I had to spend about an entire month just going through it. And, uh, you know, before we got started on the project. Um, so yeah, it was, it was the uh, mix of wanting to learn more about the unicorn and finding this a really fascinating topic. And also just, um, you know, just as a writer, um, it's so important for me to work with great people. And um, Vakash and I, we really, really connected from the start. And soon enough, I learned that, um, you know, we had past karmic history together, which made a lot of sense after our relationship deepened through the course of working together. And how did, how did you learn that? What process did you do to learn that? Uh, it's a great question. So uh, back in 2009, um, actually, to start, probably it'd be best to go back to 2008. Um, I was a teacher in the New York City Teaching Fellows uh, program um, right out of college. And I had a pretty um, uncomfortable experience that essentially led me to being um, removed from that program. And it was a really dark year, 2009. Um, I basically lived at home with my mother. And um, one, of the, one of the rituals that we had was watching um, the television program, The X-Files, together. And I had never heard of it until we saw this episode, but there was an episode where this 
uh, main character in the show, Fox Mulder, uh, undergoes past life regression hypnosis. And I went to a hypnotist by the name of Ellie Billa Lewis in New York. And um, I had a few past lives. But afterwards, uh, he told me that he also does something called life between lives regression, uh, basically like between, um, you, you know, your, 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 a death in a life into the rebirth of another life, just what is there in between. Yeah. And the intermissive periods, the intermissive periods yes. between lives. Yeah. Exactly. And, and one, the only entity that I really saw that had a vivid, you know, that was really vivid was um, an energy that I didn't know what it was. Um, we were formless. We were in space and, and we were totally free. We were, we were not limited by the body. Um, and this energy was a mentor to me, but in a, in a kind of a blunt way. And uh, the energy used the metaphor of a thermometer to um, explain to me about how I wasn't fully utilizing uh, the potential that I, I was birthed uh, with. Um, this energy said that most people, if I remember correctly, were born at 67 degrees and you're born at 70 degrees. Why have they, um, why have they been able to raise that temperature and you haven't? So it was kind of a challenge, like throwing down the gauntlet, like, you know, our lives that, you know, that we have, even though I believe in reincarnation, each life is very important. Why haven't you achieved what you're supposed to set out? And it's kind of like it was, a little, sounds like a bit, of, a bit of a wake up call or something like, Hey, you know, there's more for you to do here. Something yes. like that. And yes. And, uh, you know, I talked about it with, with Ellie, the uh, hypnotist after, but of course, since, you know, he, you know, we don't have karmic history together. He can only, offer insights as a therapist uh would but um i didn't really know what to make of this energy for six years and uh I, in most of the past lives that i regressed uh, i could clearly see who some of those figures were in this current life um, there's only one figure that i remember from the four lives i regressed that i still have not met yet um but yeah this energy i was completely stumped by who this was um, six years later, in 2015, uh, towards the end of the year, when I met Akasha for the first time, I immediately took to her, and she, she is well to me, but I didn't quite know exactly um, that she was this energy just yet. Uh, at first, you know, it was a very professional relationship. Um, we, have, we had very different working styles at the beginning, um, but that we start, so there was a little bit of a uh, being out of sync at first, but we worked yeah. through that. And not only did we become great work partners, but very close friends. And Vakasha became a mentor to me. I call her my spiritual mother, spiritual grandmother. And even though she's uh, she passed away this May, um, yeah, she just had left an amazing imprint in terms of helping me uh, reach my potential or start heading towards that. And I knew just after we started getting really close that Vakasha was that energy. And she's, and, and yeah, that was just, uh, that's how I knew it is as we got closer, uh, I knew she was that, that energy, that challenging energy, but that, that extremely loving energy as well. And guiding yeah, in some way. Yes. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So I actually, I would like to talk a bit about how you guys work together in a moment, but you just said something that kind of saying with that, with your hypno, uh, hyp, hypno regressions 
Um, Because I found that very interesting that you talked about meeting various people in or seeing various people in those regressions and then meeting them, becoming aware of them in your life right now, which is so what's what's interesting about it for me is that I've done a number of regressions uh, myself and overwhelmingly um, there's been other people in there, but it's overwhelmingly seems to have been about my own experiences you know my own so there would be i would be connected with past lives where the person myself you know me in that time the consciousness manifestation that time was struggling with certain issues or was stuck in certain places um or carrying you know like burdens or whatever and um and and how that had repercussions in my life now was kind of the main thing i got from it and uh, yeah, very little about seeing other people. So I just find that interesting. And I'm curious whether you also had those personal aspects as well. Uh, yeah, the personal aspects were actually in these four experiences of these past lives, deeply intertwined with others. The earliest life that I remember regressing was about the year 1000 in the common era. Um, I was an Egyptian and a Muslim, and I had a very close friend who we, we were basically nomadic and we would travel across the Sahara desert together. And um, some of the experiences uh, really transformative that s- stick with me to this day were as Muslims, uh, you know, we, we, in, we traveled uh, from Egypt to present day Tunisia and uh, there we spoke with a rabbi and he basically told me and my friend uh, in this life that um, any, any sort of separation is illusion. So, you know, you, you can think about the distinction between a, a, someone of the Islamic faith and someone of the Jewish faith, or even just two individuals. Uh, you know, if we can get past the, the notion of separation and that all is one, you know, we, we, we would be in a lot better uh, situation. And so these, kind, and, and, and there were similar experiences, not necessarily as profound, um, some were quite a bit more mundane, but all of these experiences were wrapped in with people, um, you know, in those lives. Uh, for example, that, that friend of mine was my uh, former fiance. Um, I'm currently married to a wonderful woman now, but um, this, this former fiance um, played a very transformative role in my life as well. So some of these lives, some of these individuals that we encounter in past lives, at least from my experience, um, you know, do come up in, in very important ways uh, in the life we're all currently living right now. Yeah, and, um, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Um, it's really interesting. And so then I, I get from, from that that you're, um, uh, I like to ask people about their sort of paradigm, you know, the framework that you use uh, generally when you approach matters of, of spirituality, I suppose. So I get the sense that, you know, you use the word multidimensional quite a few times in your book um, that we talk about the multidimensional yes. unicorn. So I guess you have a, you obviously have a perspective in which, you know, you've had past lives. Um, wh- what about other, what are the, some other aspects of your paradigm? I, I guess you're open to connection through non, with non-physical life forms, those kinds of things. Uh, you know, I guess maybe the best way to describe it is I've always been, um, sort of one foot in and one foot out in terms of um, anything that really can't be explained by current science or maybe maybe a better way to phrase that is it's currently 
almost unanimously agreed upon by scientists. So I, I don't, you know, frivolously uh, believe just anything, but I also don't, um, you know, discard anything without proof. So I like to really embrace um, the challenge of trying to trying to find out the truth in terms of situations. Like um, maybe a good way to kind of illustrate this point is um, when I first started working with Akasha on the book of the Magical Mythical Unicorn, um, because of some of her physical challenges at the time uh, with her COPD condition and mobility issues, uh, it really necessitated us working very closely together. I essentially moved in with her through uh, much of the writing process of, of this book. And one thing she told me is that some people who come to my house are known to have uh, an encounter with the unicorn. And of course, I was excited about working on this project uh, with her, but um, I kind of took that with a grain of salt. I, at the time, I didn't, I thought I, I didn't believe in the unicorn as an actual creature that had a, a physical existence of, of any sort. But um, first, first week, first 10 days or so, um, you know, it was just normal. We were getting to know each other professionally and personally, and just like any other project as a writer. But um, about 10 days in, uh, I go to sleep pretty early around 10 at night. And um, about three hours later, I woke up and I started seeing not the full unicorn, but its horn materialize um, just out of thin air. It was a spiral uh, horn. It was multicolored. It was beautiful. And I was stunned because uh, I had only had one other um, I guess I'll call it paranormal or supernatural experience in my life before. And I've had none since that just cannot be explained. Um, and uh, yeah, well, the, when your, I saw your that, regressions, told, yeah. your regressions are kind of paranormal experience. Yeah, I guess you could, I guess you could consider those as well. Um, yeah. I, I guess uh, maybe what I mean by that is that I physically saw uh, yeah. something. Uh, and I was going to ask you, so were you, were you fully awake? Were you sitting up? Were you kind of in a, like a sleep paralysis state or something? Or No, it wasn't like a sleep paralysis state. I was fully awake. Um, yeah, and it, it, I took that as a sign that I was on the right track and that we were on the right track writing the Book of the Magical Mythical Unicorn. Um, we really feel that this is the right time to have released this book. Uh, with its release date of September 1st. Uh, Vakasha started this project. She got actually off to a false start back in the 1990s. She hired an amazing woman, um, Artist Boyd, to, to serve as her researcher. They went to the Philosophical Research Society from uh, Manly P. Hall, the great esotericist. Um, they went to the Rosicrucians, uh, working with their libraries, and many other places uh, throughout the States. And um, yeah, and, uh, but Vakasha couldn't find a writer back in the 1990s and so um she's a very, just like just like uh, myself she's someone who really likes to dip her hands in a lot of different things uh, she's been a producer uh on off-broadway plays she's been a very successful artist um many other spheres um, ran a, a non-profit called the unicorn archive but she just didn't find the right fit for a writer and so she was off doing other things for a period of decades and if you really think about it, like the last five years are where we started to see the unicorn really start reemerging into popular um, consciousness, uh, even in trivial things like uh, an explosion of toys related to it, or even business terminology referring to 
um, companies that rapidly scale up as unicorns. Um, you know, there's a lot of things that could be, there's a lot of terms that could describe the same, um, you know, process. Why the unicorn? And, and what we learned uh, from the course of writing this book is because the unicorn, its reemergence is near and all these signs uh, of it coming back into the popular culture and also, um, also some of the chaotic nature of, of the, the world we live in right now, especially in 2020, um, these are all signs, uh, we believe, that the current age that we're living in is coming to an end uh, shortly and a new age, a golden age, is actually going to replace it. And, uh, you know, in the meantime, between, you know, in this transitional state between the ages, there's going to be a lot of chaos, and it may be personally difficult for us on an individual level and also on a collective level, but um, there's definitely something better uh, with the unicorn's reemergence and, you know, going forward into the future. I mean, that... that uh, uh hope for a golden age is a very old part of human history right it's been around since the since the dark ages maybe before um this this belief that just around the corner there's something going to come that that will radically transform our our existence um so i'm always a little bit uh skeptical about that as a as an idea i i you know the appeal absolutely i can totally get it but um uh it seems that if you look across at least our known history, um, you know, we've been through many, many uh, millennia of um, much longer than even the last 2,000 years, right, the, um, yes. of cycles of, of similar versions of what we have now, you know, empires, corruption, tribal, tribal warfare and all this kind of, and then eras of peace as well and, and so on. Um, yeah, I mean, I, look, I, I, um, I'm interested. I, I think there is this, it feels like a shift. It feels like something is shifting. Consciousness is shifting in some way. Um, I'm just not sure that it'll happen in any, you know, that necessarily a golden age is, is right there around the corner. So in, in the framework that I operate in, um, you know, we also talk about a, a shift, but we, we kind of look at it as turning the, our planet from a, from a hospital which it is now primarily a hospital to one that's more of a school than a hospital. Um, yes. So that would be a good outcome. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, I mean, um, yes. I was going to say, when you talk about the emergence of the unicorn, do you see that as a, um, or the reappearance, I think you said, yeah, the reemergence, do you see that as a, a, yes. a physical, you know, a physical form or a kind of consciousness that it represents a kind of consciousness? Well, the, that's a great question. Um, you know, we, we got a lot of this information from a uh, text, um, an ancient Gnostic text that was revealed uh, to us. And we worked with an, the author who had, who had found this um, text to, re to reveal this information. So I can only go based on this text. And, and, and for me, you know, here in 2020, with the chaos that we see, and with everyone, I think everyone, all seven plus billion of us, want a better world. Now, now, we may disagree on exactly what that means or how to achieve that, but I think everyone wants um, things to, to be as ideal as they, as they can be. Um, and, and of course, we're not there yet. Um, do I think that the unicorn uh, you know, will usher in this age? I do. Uh, will it be in our lifetimes? Um, I'm not sure about that. It, it might not uh, be. 
But I do think that when the unicorn uh, comes back, um, it's going to be a total transformation. So, um, you know, if you even look at certain um, predictions for, um, you know, in terms of environmental challenges that we face, uh, there's, I, I don't know if we could make it as a species to 2100. Um, you know, we, we might not be able to. Um, scientists have been amazing with bailing us out of various problems in the past, but we have a, we have a major disaster, um, you know, heading our way. Uh, and it's, a lot of it is just due to lifestyle, this lifestyle of ultra consumption um, that, that's really all throughout the planet uh, and growing every day. And it's not a sustainable way to um, really, really come to peace with our planet. So, and it seems like countries and, and the global community as a whole, our, our leadership, are not really addressing these challenges. So, you know, it's sort of like the child who tries to sweep, um, you know, what they're hiding from their parents under the bed. Um, that's sort of where we are today. So could the unicorn come in, you know, before when, when certain doom appears? And we're not there yet. Uh, certainly, this could be 60, 80, 100 years down the line, but things are pretty chaotic. And, you know, I don't really foresee until that golden age reemerges um, things getting much better, uh, at least not over a long uh, span. I think things are going to continue to um, get more chaotic. And, um, but, you know, we'll see. Uh, I, I wouldn't want anyone to um, take my words as gospel truth. Uh, you know, for when people read the book of the magical mythical unicorn, I want them to come to their own conclusions, even about whether they think the unicorn exists in any real way or, or not. Um, yeah. I don't want to ever, you know, be seen as someone didactic. Um, you know, definitely make make your decisions and, and understanding uh, to the best of your own ability and with the, with the evidence that you see. Yeah, look, absolutely. I mean, that's the, I don't know if you've listened to the, any, the intro of this podcast, but the, one of the, the principles is don't believe in anything, you know, have your own experiences and make up your own mind, basically. So that's the, a really key approach always. Um, yes, so absolutely. In terms of uh, the research process, so I'm sorry, uh, your, your co-author's name was Vasya? Uh, yes, Vakasha uh, Brennan. Vakasha, Vakasha, sorry. Yeah, so, so if I understand it right, Vakasha was, uh, essentially um, the, the lead researcher. She, she had done a lot of research already and you are then the writer. Yeah, so she provides the information to you and you kind of work through it and assemble it and so on. Is that how you came about writing the book? Uh, somewhat. Um, Fakasha was involved in, in the writing very deeply. So um, the way our process kind of worked is if you go back to the 1990s, Bakasha commissioned um, this woman named Artist to, to do the research for her. But then once we got started in 2015, the research process was, was collaborative. Um, 20 years is a long time and for new information, new modes of, of, of finding information to come about. Um, we did a lot of research on Google and also because of her mobility issues, uh, she asked me to go to various libraries in New York City, uh, the Butler Library at Columbia University, um, New York Public Library and others. And so we, we supplemented the original research uh, with you know, new, new research, um, accessing databases, um, trying pretty much every permutation of different spiritual traditions, different cultures, different time periods with the unicorn, using different words since um, 
In many cultures, they don't use the word unicorn or directly translate it to it. Uh, for example, in the Middle East, unicorn is known as the Carcadon. In um, China, it's known as the Keelin. Uh, in, in many other cultures, there's also uh, unique names for the unicorn. So the research process was kind of a three-way um, work uh, between artists, Vakasha, and myself. In terms of the writing, the way we started was Vakasha gave me the, this mountain of research that artists had, had uh, compiled in the 1990s. And I started with a draft. And every time there was a draft, um, Vakasha would, would polish it and, and get really to the essence in terms of writing it. And this went across, uh, you know, at least, at least 15 drafts until we got it right. And uh, we believe that the unicorn was really guiding us through this process. Uh, Vakasha is an amazing creative talent, not just as a writer, but um, all around. And, um, you know, I, I don't really like tooting my own horn, but I've been pretty experienced as a writer. But uh, I think we were just the channels selected to tell the unicorn story. Um, and I think that the unicorn definitely helped us um, come to certain deeper meanings about things that uh, had been presented before, but maybe not fully understood or maybe not clearly um, you know, expressed. So um, yeah, so it was a course of just many drafts working together. And one of the things I really loved about working with Makasha on the book of Magical Mythical Unicorn was we would just sound out the chapters and, and ideas would flow from, from that back and forth communication. Um, I mean, read them to yeah, each it, other? Yeah, we would read them to each other. We'd take turns reading the paragraphs and we'd stop each other um, when something new came about. And sometimes it was, it was trivial things like a comma placement or you know, subbing out a word for each other. But a lot of times it, it was sort of really digging into new avenues of research or new ways of expressing. And yeah, those breakthrough days, those breakthrough um, times were, were amazing. And, uh, you know, we had many of them. And, you know, when I, when I look at, because the Book of the Magical Mythical Unicorn is my first, um, you know, feature-length book, um, it really is like giving birth just because where it started to the finished product, um, Vakash and I used to joke a lot about how we hope to release a second version of this book um, after Book of Magical Mythical Unicorn came out, where it would be kind of a gag reel of sorts with certain things that we misunderstood or things that are just a little bit outside of the parameters of the truth of yeah. um, the unicorn story. Um, but yeah, it was, it was a wonderful writing process working with Vakasha. Yeah, that sounds great. It's a, it's, it can be a challenge, I think, writing with someone else. So it's great that it flowed so nicely. Um, so, all right, let's have a little book, a talk about your, it's kind of the, the findings. So um, as a, uh, um, I guess I'm curious about the evidence, right? And it was kind of, it's kind of scattered around a bit. I've, I've found a few passages there um, where you talk about uh, uh, actual evidence of um, uh, remains, uh, archaeological yes. remains, it sounds like it, that point towards yes. the physical existence of a unicorn, right? So you have an example there from uh, Korea, um, a place called the Unicorn's Lair, uh, I'm yes. not quite sure. Um, the basis for this seems to be the ins inscription unicorns lair rather than actual um, remains, right? So I guess there could be a number of interpretations of that. Then 
there is uh, a skull found in Kazakhstan. I guess yes. that's really, really intriguing. And you talk about three different uh, encounters of skeletal remains in Germany, which, uh, you know, being German myself immediately makes me want to do a bit of research next time I'm back in the country once travel allows that. So, yeah, but I'd be interested if you want to talk a bit about, about that part of it, right? And maybe if there's any other pieces of things that you would consider um, physical evidence in that sense rather than the mythical or narrative evidence. Yes, um, those are great examples. And also um, one example that I'd also talk about is the massive trade and use of the unicorn's horn or fragments of its horn by various European royalty. Uh, same kind of practice also went on in, in India and uh, in many other um, areas uh, in, in the Sudan and really just through many parts of the globe. And um, yeah, when we were compiling um, this information, um, of course, we didn't see any of this firsthand. So as someone who has a, a very serious interest in documentary filmmaking and, uh, and also just someone who really wants to get to the truth of the situation, um, I would love if, if it allows both in terms of COVID-19 and also just in terms of uh, resources and time, if I could go to these places and, and see this uh, for myself. Um, but we did find, uh, you know, from our extensive work cited, a lot of sources attesting to these things. And we also saw um, quite a bit of sources talking with various historical figures. Um, everything from Julius Caesar, who uh, was believed to have seen a unicorn during a military expedition, uh, actually in Germany as well, um, to uh, Genghis Khan, um, having an encounter with the unicorn right at the, uh, of course it's not a physical border, but uh, toward, as he was going towards South Asia into um, the Indian subcontinent, and he believed that that was keeping him, that was kind of an omen not to invade, which he never did. Um, you know, so there's a lot of historical figures. Well, one um, thing, um, sorry for interrupting, yes. but I, one thing that I, no, I would say, and I, I might be, I, I probably apply a standard that is unlikely to many other readers because my, by profession, I'm a forensic. So I work in a forensic context, right? I work in legal matters mm -hmm. and anthropology. And um, one thing that I found a little bit, uh, uh, frustrating. I was like, oh, I wish there was more, you know, if that is to actually have the source cl more clarity about where this information comes from as I'm reading, because I like to then go off and do my own little, um, you know, research and kind of see if there's any other detail and so on. So for example, with those accounts, um, with Genghis Khan and, um, and, uh, and Caesar, I, I mean, are those records, like are there original records, you know, of records left in, in Mongolian or in Latin or so on that you then kind of were able to like have as the root sources or are these accounts that you found, you know, like how many, how many steps down the original source are your sources? Most of them are not primary sources actually. So, but they were featured in, in various um, books, not just, previous books about the unicorn, but other books about uh, supernatural creatures and, and others. So we, we basically rejected anything that was only found in one source just because it, did, it didn't really pass the smell test. But in terms of, and, and I appreciate that standard because uh, 
as someone who really likes to investigate and I don't believe in something without having the proof myself. Um, so in terms of for readers uh, with the evidence, the historical evidence, um, yeah, I mean, definitely don't take our word for it just because we say it. Uh, if you could, uh, and actually on, on our website, theunicornbook.com, if you have primary sources or if you have things that uh, confirm or refute some of the uh, information uh, there's a contact form right on the unicornbook.com and I'd love to have dialogue um, with your listeners and, and other interested parties who have, who can um, further this conversation. Vakash uh, and I always viewed this book as an evolving process. Um, and that's a great point also just about the, the documenting of where we found this. That was actually a stylistic choice that Vakash and I came to after many discussions um, we had seen many other books. Um, I don't really like labeling things, but just, just for uh, clarity of language, um, esoteric books that are written in either an overly, I don't know, probably not the right word, but in a very academic fashion or um, in, in a way that you would have to be very well-versed in esoteric matters to even have a slight chance of understanding. Yeah. And we really wanted to prioritize accessibility uh, for this book, for, for general audiences, and for people to come to it uh, for different reasons, for people who may be skeptical and want to see some of this historical evidence and see you know, if it passes their smell test, but also for people who may want to just tell some, some fascinating legends that are written in a more fiction-oriented um, way, which we also have based on some various legends that, that are interspersed throughout the book of the Magical Mythical Unicorn. And then we go also into... Um, deeper esoteric meanings, um, especially towards some of the later chapters in this book. And uh, so we really want to give a little bit of something to everyone. And so we thought about having footnotes, um, you know, with the book, but we thought it would, it would not exactly be uh, ideal for, for a wider audience. Um, it might put us casual uh, readers yeah. for sure. Yeah. Yes. Yes, that, that, was, that was our thought. Uh, that's why we uh, didn't, didn't go that route. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, so you mentioned um, some of the, the deeper kind of meanings that became um, more apparent to you as you went through, did the research or you feel like you've kind of been able to tap into things that previous writers about unicorns kind of maybe didn't quite get to or didn't quite linked to what would be some examples of that um well one of the most famous uh, artworks uh featuring the unicorn is probably the best example um i could use in answer to that question um lady and the unicorn that's exhibited in the cleaning museum in, in paris um there's been a lot of there have been a, a lot of books about the unicorn that have featured this um it's Arguably, right, right up there with the unicorn tapestries as the sing, you know, singular. Is this where the um, woman has her arms around the unicorn, sort of on her lap? Is that that picture, or? Yeah, yeah. So it's it's right. this uh, kind of in a, in a royal court uh, with the unicorn and other other figures, and this has been featured in. Um, I, I don't think that there's been any unicorn book that hasn't featured this in the past. Um, unless it was a very specialized uh, thing or something particularly for children. But um, 
Yeah, we came to an understanding in terms of some of the exact placements of the woman's arms, um, the exact order of how the, the different figures were arranged. Uh, and for readers of the book, The Magical Mythical Unicorn, they can see uh, exactly what that, that came about. And we were baffled for a long period of time as we were trying to present this, this part of the story because uh, we really tried to feature heavily a lot of the way the ways that the unicorn has been has been presented in the arts. Um, it's actually our longest chapter in our book, but uh, we didn't feel that anyone truly, uh, you know, was able to understand exactly what the the meaning of that artwork was, and we weren't able to do that at first either. And then, um, as as I believe and as Vakasha believed, the unicorn guided us to that understanding, and um, basically every 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 uh, exact the exact nature of how that art was laid out uh, and the, the choices of, of the artist in terms of how they you know why they why they did it in this fashion in this fashion um yeah it came to us from the unicorn kind of giving us that that um that spiritual sight that it's known for uh to to be able to tell it and to be able to explain it in, in a way instead of just presenting it yeah, one thing I I um, I guess um, I was thinking about is the distribution of the unicorn, right? So um, I noticed, you know, there is no chapter on Australia, for example, in in your book. And um, you know, after twenty years of working in different indigenous communities across this country, I've heard of many different, as I said at the outset, many different kind of beings that people believe have populate and used to populate uh, and, and create this land, um, but nothing ever that resembles the unicorn in any way. Um, so that's interesting. And I also found your, your chapter on North America, this comes back to the source material, right? But if I read it correctly, essentially the sources were Europeans interpreting certain things that the, the Indigenous people showing them or giving them as remnants of unicorn horns. So I don't think there was any, there was no example of a story or a narrative actually by the native peoples. Was there about unicorns? Uh, no, no. Yeah. It was uh, primarily from the interaction with the European explorers, primarily British ones, uh, yeah. also a few Dutch ones as well. And that kind of made me, you know, it makes me suspicious that they were interpreting things through their lens or they were embellishing things to, for the benefit of, you know, audiences back in the in the home countries. So yeah, I guess I've I've come away with a sense that the, the it's found really across Asia, Europe, and uh, you've got a few examples there from North Africa, right, Ethiopia, um, which is um, which also intrigued me because they talk about many, right? There's these accounts of people seeing many unicorns grazing, um, which then made me think maybe they were because that kind of clashes with the overarching theme of this elusive solitary kind of creature that you know appears only in certain circumstances so that made me think maybe they were confusing it with some um some native animal that uh i, I don't quite know what you know is in ethiopia now but um you know one of the horned animals or so yes actually um you know so so when we were going through this process um you know we, we were going from multiple sources but um, we did find it, it strange that there actually were no 
uh, there was nothing that we found in the research in terms of the unicorn in Australia. So what you said about working with the indigenous communities and not hearing about something, um, you know, any any uh, creature, mythical or otherwise, resembling a unicorn, that kind of uh, that, that doesn't surprise me hearing that. Um, North America was also very scant. Uh, just those European explorers' uh, encounters uh, with the unicorn on the eastern coast of the eastern coast of the United States and also the maritime provinces in Canada. But um, South America, for example, is also another area where there's almost nothing about the unicorn. Uh, we, were, we were actually pretty frustrated uh, as we were going through the research process uh, and not finding much in South America about the unicorn. Um, the only example that we found uh, were a few cave drawings in uh, present-day Argentina that um, I think there are three different, uh, mostly lakes, that are uh, caves near lakes in Argentina that have depictions of the unicorn um, dating back to four, 6,000 years ago, uh, really pre-civilization. Um, but yeah, definitely there's a higher concentration in Europe, um, all throughout Asia, and in, in various parts of Africa, uh, primarily about Egypt, Sudan, and Ethiopia. Um, and also a little bit of a cluster in South Africa. So um, why these certain cultures have more uh, information and legends and encounters with the unicorn and certain others do not, um, you know, that's a great question and I'm not fully sure. I know that, um, and this is not a theory that I'm personally advocating for, but um, one thing that Kasha speculated um, as we were going through this, and as we saw, um, you know, this wealth of information in Europe, Asia, and Africa, and nothing or relatively nothing in the Americas and in Australia and Oceania, um, we, um, we, at least in terms of the Americas, we thought that it might be the difference between the unicorn and the serpent. Um, there's a lot of different uh, traditions, and I, I'm certainly not an expert in this, but uh, from what she said, there are a lot of traditions involving the serpent in um, the Americas and, and among the indigenous peoples of the Americas. And, um, and, and in Australia. Least the way, that's yeah, the, oh, that's so the that dominant universal, the universal um, kind of, uh, one of the universal themes across the continent is um, the what they often call here the rainbow serpent. Interestingly, actually, because one of the, the themes of the unicorn is water, right? Um, finding yes. water clearing water, purifying yes. water. And certainly here, um, the, the rainbow serpent is associated with waterways, waterholes, uh, and, mm -hmm. and rainfall. Yeah. Uh, you know, as far, it, it, as far as Vakashi was saying, I think that she was kind of getting at the fact that there's almost a natural antipathy between the unicorn and the serpent. Uh, one legend that we go into in, uh, in detail in the book of the magical mythical unicorn is, is popularly known as the water conning story. And it often includes a serpent uh, poisoning the waters for animals, for other animals. And so the unicorn would dip its horn to um, remove the poison that, that affected this body of water and make it safe for, for the other animals to drink. And so if, uh, you know, the, the indigenous peoples of the Americas and Australia have um, legends connecting serpents to water. It's almost um, almost like a 
you know, I, I don't want to be flippant, but almost like a turf war in terms of um, the associations. And so maybe um, Europe, Asia, and Africa had more of a, a connection to the unicorn, whereas uh, the Americas and Australia um, have more of a connection to the serpent. And um, that would make a lot of sense for why we found, I, I won't say nothing, but very little information um, in those regions of the world. Mm. Yeah, it's certainly an interesting uh, kind of pattern that would be worth exploring further, I think. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Um, let me see. So we've touched on the, yeah, we've touched on the, the, the water purifying, um, aspect. Um, I hadn't heard this expression before water conning. Yeah. That refers to it's purifying the, the water. Yes. Yeah. Um, and then there's uh, all these many, uh, uh, healing associations, right. Associated, especially with the unicorn's horn. Yes. Um, yeah, I mean, there's been um, many instances of the unicorn's horn being used for physical healing um, throughout Europe, Asia, and um, Africa. Again, we also see that same kind of um, challenge in terms of the Americas and Australia not having these traditions. But um, probably the most um, common thing that the unicorn's horn was used was for uh, its, its belief um, in, in being used as an anti-poison. Uh, I found it fascinating, actually, around the 15th and 16th centuries um, in, in Italy, primarily, there, there were many instances of royals and other powerful individuals um, using poison to get rid of rivals, political rivals, even within their own families. And um, so unicorns' horns, or less ideally fragments of, of such, were used as a way to test every, basically test all food and all drink presented to a person. Um, of course, there was a lot of instances of basically crooks who were using things that were clearly not, any, had anything to do with the unicorn's horn, passing it off as such. Um, it's a dark story, but, uh, but one worth telling. Um, King James, uh, the first of the King James Bible, um, actually believed that he had part of a unicorn's horn and he had his serpent test food to, to see if it, it's been, it had been poisoned. And so he dipped, or he had the servant dip uh, part of the horn of the unicorn into it. And then the servant, um, you know, tried the, tried the food and he, he died from the, from the fact that the food was poisoned. So there was a, a market for, things that were completely unrelated to the unicorn. But, um, but just because of, there's been so many sources, I do believe that there were actual unicorn horns that some figures, primarily uh, royals, did have and, uh, and fragments uh, of such that came down to ordinary people. There's been many sources talking about uh, the many effects that it had to heal people, even of things as simple as a common cold mm. to you know, more serious illnesses as well. Um, but, you know, there's definitely, there was definitely, um, I'd, I'd say probably more um, bunk unicorn horns than there were real ones or fragments of such uh, that actually had those curative properties. 
Well, I guess the question is, uh, the question would be, were there real unicorn horns that actually had those properties and then people made up ones because of that? Or did people make up a story about unicorn horns so they could sell fakes from the start, right? These are kind of just at least two possibilities in this scenario. But it would make a lot of sense that, um, I mean, first of all, I think there's absolutely no reason to think that unicorns wouldn't have existed in terms of, the kinds of animals that exist, right? There's no reason why there wouldn't yes. have been a horse-like creature with a horn in the center of its head. Yes. Um, it would also make sense that they would have gone extinct if people thought that you needed to get the horn off them, right? We're dealing with that right now with all kinds of animals that are being hunted for their tusks. Yes. It's like the tradition has continued um, or for their medicinal properties in, in some parts of the world. Yes. So... Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I'm more uh, inclined to believe that uh, there were there were actual unicorn horns and fragments, and and people started seeing um, the results, the magnificent results in many cases, um, just even even results that were so inexplicable that uh, people were amazed by them. And so, you know, just because this was obviously in very short supply. Um, it, I mean, just think about uh, anything in terms of uh, business models. Um, there's a market. If, if people start seeing profits being made from something that has dramatic results, uh, especially if it's in short supply, um, demand is really high and supply is very low. So if you're someone who is not the most ethical, but you know you have a great mind for business, um, it makes sense that a lot of these individuals who weren't particularly reputable, started uh, claiming things to be unicorns horn, uh, unicorn horns. Um, we saw this actually. There, there was a, primarily um, uh, from, from Denmark, um, a number of sailors would, would travel into um, the Arctic Sea and get the tusks or, or teeth of, the, of narwhals um, and, and pass them off as, as unicorn horn. And um, you know, these were, of course, not actual unicorn horns. And they have no medicinal properties whatsoever, but they resemble it closely enough that you could sell this and you could make large profits from it, um, you know, not just to the European markets, but also to um, Asian markets and, and Near Eastern markets and coastal African markets. And, uh, and they did. And um, so, you know, for people who were okay with the... Um, you know, not even ethical ambiguity, but the fact that it was purely disreputable, um, yeah. preying on people's um, beliefs and on, on something that actually had seen work, um, you know, they, they sold products that were just simply ineffective at best. And um, yeah, and, and made a large amount of money from it. So I do believe that the actual unicorn horn was in very short supply, but um, it worked as advertised, at least to the best of my knowledge from seeing these sources, that's, that's the conclusion I came to. But, um, but yeah, there was, of course, buyer beware in terms of this after, um, after it started being known about these properties and started coming into, into use. Yeah. And, you know, you can see the continuity of that across history with the dark side of the sort of supplement world now, right, with people selling subpar supplements and, and and all that kind of business it's an ongoing that 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 profit idea seems to have been around for thousands of years as well 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I, I think it's sad when um, people feel comfortable enough to exploit others uh, for gain. I think it comes from um, a mindset which I hope we can usher out soon, uh, the competitive mindset versus the collaborative one. Um, I think that a lot of that comes from this notion that resources are scarce, uh, whether it's financial or otherwise, and viewing things as kind of a zero-sum game. And um, I hope that you know we can grow uh, spiritually and otherwise so we can go beyond that. But yeah, uh, vitamins are a great example of that. There are many that are, are absolutely beneficial, but um, at least here in the, in the United States, there's no regulation of um, you know, you know the the quantities of, of vitamins and, and such. So you could purchase something for you know a fairly high price that that purports to do all all manner of, of um, beneficial attributes, but it may it may be you know, just a complete placebo and, and maybe you'll have those placebo effects, but, um, but yeah, but without the regulation, you don't quite know. And it, I think that's a good analogy for, um, what happened, um, about the 15th to the 17th century with the unicorn horn trade. Mm. Yeah. Um, so let's turn to the sort of more multidimensional aspect perhaps uh, for the end of this conversation. Um, I, I get the impression from what you've said for Vakasha, the unicorn had already been a, an important feature long before. Obviously she started her research 20 years ago. You said she started some kind of unicorn organization, um, research yes. organization. Um, yes. So, the unicorn archive. Yeah. And yeah, the unicorn, the unicorn archive. And she said that you would, you know, the unicorn would come to you when you stayed or that it came to a lot of people in her house. So I guess I'm curious whether she had some kind of spiritual practice centered around the unicorn, you know, meditation or something like that. Yeah. I mean, that's a great question. Um, one thing that she told me a number of times, and this is one of, um, I mean, she had a, a happy childhood, but this is one of her favorite memories of her childhood um, she grew up uh, on the coast here in, in the States, in, in North Carolina, um, on a family farm. And, of course, there's a lot of um, free space uh, on, on her family's land. And around the age, she must have been about six, somewhere between six and eight, she uh, had a personal encounter with the unicorn. Um, I, I, I would joke with her that I felt shortchanged only seeing the horn when she actually got to see the entirety of the unicorn as a young girl. And really from there, uh, the unicorn stayed with her in terms of uh, a very close spiritual connection with it. But, you know, as at least from into her teen years and twenties, her life was pretty ordinary. I mean, she ended up getting a degree in business administration. She worked in public relations and, um, she was married, uh, two great kids who uh, I feel privileged to continue a friendship with today. But, um, but when she started hitting her 30s, she had a real reevaluation of her life and basically tossed away her, the entirety of her old life and devoted herself for the last 40 plus years of her life to spiritual knowledge and exploration. And the unicorn played a, a very central part, uh, the primary figure in her spiritual exploration. So she worked uh, very closely 
uh, on a telepathic level with the unicorn, um, um, not just for this project, but just generally um, helping her, helping guide her throughout life. And, um, and yeah, she had a really close connection uh, with it throughout her life. And um, I personally didn't have this experience, but my wife, uh, who is uh, for fan for for fan uh, for listeners who may be fans of the X Files, who know uh, the primary characters of Fox Mulder and Dana Scully, uh, Mulder being the more um, easily persuadable, shall we say, to supernatural and other events of the sort, and Scully being a, um, a harder skeptic. Uh, my wife has always been the Scully to my Mulder, and um, so I was so surprised actually after Vakasha passed away that. Um, this Vassar and Columbia University trained economist, my, my wife, um, had a vision, a clear as day, of Bakasha in the clouds with the unicorn and all of the pain that she had in this life, um, you know, that, that the frustrations that, that come from the constant physical challenges, at least for the five years that I knew her, were gone and she was as happy as a teenager. And I thought that was, that was pretty interesting. Okay, my wife had this experience. But then about a week or two ago, when I communicated with a friend of mine who was living with Vakasha for a brief period of time, and she had almost the, exactly the same vision, um, I started thinking, well, you know, there's definitely something to it. And, and to go back to an earlier topic of our conversation um, with the past life regression and the life between lives regression, I could see uh, from these experiences that, um, you know, the life that I currently inhabit right now is not the end. It will not be the end, uh, you know, when this body dies. And it didn't seem to be the same for Bakasha either. As, um, she seemed to have been liberated and uh, to have a an even closer, uh, much closer um, experience with the unicorn now after she's passed than even during her lifetime. Yeah, I mean, that's that's exactly how a lot of people describe that feeling of passing is, is like liberation, right? That they're free from this burden of the physical body, especially if you're suffering the way it sounds like she was really struggling with her physical body. Yeah. Yes. And so um, what was the impact on your wife to have this vision? If she that wasn't something that was in her mind, like the, the, those things can be quite impactful. Yeah, I mean, um, she... she uh, you know, we laugh about it a lot, but she uh, is it was just incredibly surprised that this vision came to her. Um, she's been communicating with a few different friends who are more spiritually minded and esoterically minded and maybe a little bit more open to, to these things than general population. And um, so maybe there's a little bit of there was a little bit of a chipping away at the uh, extreme skepticism that she that's kind of her natural um, go to, but, um, yeah, she definitely did not expect to see that. And, um, yeah, and I certainly didn't expect to hear that. Um, I wish I could say that I had a, a, a deep supernatural kind of experience with Bakasha after she passed, even though we became so close. Uh, she basically said I was like her, her, her grandson. And I, I felt you know the same, you know, for her, but I, I couldn't say that I had an experience of the sort. Um, but, my wife did and, and our friend Ari did. And um, yeah, so I, I think that there's definitely something to it. And I also think it's interesting how both of these experiences happened very shortly after Bakasha passed away. Um, just from 
what I hear about um, communication with people who pass, it seems easiest to reach them. And I don't know the reason why, but it seems easiest to reach them and have some sort of interaction very shortly after the passing. Um, there could be dimensional barriers that become much harder to breach as time uh, passes. Um, but yeah. I mean, this is just a theory on my part. I, I can't speak with any uh, validity to that. It depends, you know, there seems to be different, um, different scenarios as well. So sometimes it seems when people pass, if they struggle a lot with the adjustment, then they actually, they actually, unless they're hanging around the physical dimension in a kind of stuck state, but if they've moved across and they're struggling with the adjustment, then it's actually harder to reach them because they need to have that space to adjust. But from the way you described it, if she so readily seemed rejuvenated and, and so on, sounds like for her the transition was actually uh, quite easy, that she straight away kind of assumed a lot of her extra physical awareness again. Which is lovely. Yeah, and, and it, it is lovely. And, uh, you know, even though we became incredibly close friends and she was uh, certainly a, a mentor to me, um, it pained me throughout the writing process and through her friendship when she would express a longing to leave this, this world. I mean, as her co-author, um, you know, just on a purely selfish level, I'd love nothing more than for her to be here with me enjoying, um, you know, when the book of the Magical Mythical Unicorn is released in a couple of weeks. Um, but, you know, that's just not to be, at least not here uh, on this plane. Um, but just to see how happy she was, at least from these visions, um, and also just how much of a struggle even daily life was to her. Uh, when you were doing the fun part, uh, uh, you know, uh, of the process, the writing and the editing of it, she came alive and she transcended a lot of these physical challenges. But, you know, when the workday was done, uh, it, it really took a toll on, on her um, as someone who is such a leader throughout her entire life as a producer and an artist and someone who basically lived, lived uh, her truth and just lived her life, um, especially as a, as, a, as a woman in the 1960s and 1970s before we had a, a closer, you know, notion of equality. Um, she just was always a, a trailblazer, uh, and to see just the physical limitations, both from health and mobility, uh, it, it I could just tell as a friend that it was really wearing on her. And so I, I wasn't surprised hearing these visions, just how free she was and how happy she was uh, being outside of this life. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Um. Well, look, um, Alfonso, is there anything else? Uh, I did, I did talk, uh, say I was curious to find out about the connection you made between the, the unicorn and the third eye. Um, so maybe we can just finish on that. You can talk a little bit about, about that. Sure. So the unicorn, um, one of the things that really makes it different than um, other animals, say a horse or a dog, is its horn which um, we believe from, from a legend that uh, we found um, in, in an ancient Gnostic text, uh, that the horn was actually blessed by the creator in the Edenic paradise. And that is what gave it its, its mystical properties and, and its ability to uh, travel between dimensions, um, you know, from higher, higher vibrational realities into, into our own. And so without that horn, and it's, it, the horn basically 
developed uh, all of the mystical powers and attributes that we generally are familiar with about the unicorn. And that horn is, is actually in the placement uh, or, or near the placement of where the third eye is. Um, I, I'm a Reiki practitioner and uh, yeah, just a, the same kind of placement in terms of what the third eye symbolizes there in terms of that spiritual sight and, and the spiritual um, gifts. The unicorn is very much associated with that. And also um, through that process, through our individual and also the collective uh, ascension. And so um, a lot of the, the different challenges um, that we face in terms of being more grounded in the five senses and um, basically understanding and, and the programming that, that's associated with that, uh, the limitations in terms of um, you know what we can really expect out of this life. Uh, the unicorn's really associated not so much with learning as with unlearning and through that spiritual sight of the third eye. And so for people who really try uh, with an honest effort to have encounters with the unicorn, um, it will do a lot towards opening that third eye. And, you know, if you come to the unicorn um, asking for its, its guidance and its assistance, uh, as long as it's with pure intentions, uh, you, you very well might start seeing some visions opening up um, you know, from the unicorn, it, it, it doesn't necessarily mean an appearance or, or anything um, as obvious as that. It could just be ideas or um, an elevation in terms of your consciousness. And yeah, and, and so the unicorn is very deeply associated with that, with the third eye and, and that deeper consciousness, um, you know, it's, it's associated with that. Um, so, so when you say I, it's, I think it's, it's Yes. When you say it's deeply associated with that, you're referring to that Gnostic text, yeah, that you that you mentioned. Uh, that's where the association is made. Um, um, that's one of the places, uh, one of the primary places that that we drew from in terms of um, the understanding of the unicorn and its particularly its connection um, there. But there's been many other uh, individuals. Um, Manly P. Hall made uh, a number of references, actually, in. Um, in the secret teachings of all ages, I believe uh, the canonical, uh, one of the canonical esoteric texts, um, you know, of all time. So, so Manly uh, P. Hall, you, you mentioned. Sorry, but you mentioned him. I yes. hadn't actually heard of him before. So, who's, who was oh. he? Um, he was a, a uh, spiritualist, or what's his background? Um, um, I would, I wouldn't, I don't know if I'd necessarily call him a spiritualist, but uh, he was uh, a scholar of, um, uh, basically, scholar of antiquity and, and various myths and uh yeah and, and so a lot of different um supernatural figures uh whether the unicorn or other creatures and also um various um gnostic texts ancient texts um with mystical or spiritual significance uh he was a, a really uh you know he was a canadian scholar who his life's purpose was basically his life's work was, was transmitting these messages to modern audiences. And, um, and yeah, his work was something uh, that I, I found out about uh, a little bit before I started to work with Vakasha on the book of Magical Mythical Unicorn. But I, if I did see any uh, reference to the unicorn back then, I don't think it stuck with me. But so, so through the course of writing the book of Magical Mythical Unicorn with Vakasha, um, it was a pleasant surprise to see the Manly Hall at two different points 
in his work referred to the unicorn's explicit connection um, with the third eye. Mm-hmm. And that was another um, real text that we, we referred to, um, you know, to make this connection and make this case yeah. for the unicorn's connection uh, in that respect. Yeah, it's interesting. It mentioned Reiki also, and and because um, uh, you know that's kind of an energy emission through your hands usually, right? And but the unicorn. There are some of those stories where the unicorn uh, touches a person with the horn, and they yes. are healed or they feel you know elevated and so on. And and um, I yes. I also practice uh, you know kind of energy work uh, using the hands, and I've recently actually. Uh, started because because my my third eye chakra is tends to be very active. I thought, well, why don't I include that consciously in the process and actually focus on exteriorizing energy, sending energy from that as well as from the hands when I'm working with people. Um, so that's quite interesting, you know. This that just at that kind of more esoteric level, I suppose that um, that symbolism makes sense to me, or can fit that. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And uh, yeah, um, that's actually something maybe I want to try because uh, I'm only a first degree Reiki practitioner. So I, um, it, it's basically uh, for, for those who may not practice or had a treatment, it's um, eight different hand placements at different uh, points uh, in, in your body or in someone else's uh, where you lay the hands on, you know, on these points. Or if you have a, uh, a problem somewhere else, you could, you could place your hands there. But um, yeah, I never really tried just going from the third eye uh, and, and using that as a supplement, but that's it's definitely something to, I hope to explore, uh, you know, shortly, see how that works and see if it may lead to even more um, efficacious results. Mm. And maybe connect with a unicorn while you're at it, right? So <laughs> when you're talking to me... That's a nice side benefit. When you describe to... When the way you talk about it now, it sounds to me like a, so you know in my in my perspective there are a whole host of non-physical uh, consciousnesses helpers, also people who yeah. aren't helpers, but um, yeah, a lot of helpers they take many different forms. It sounds like the unicorn is at least the way you see it, and you know the data kind of seems to suggest it has maybe played that role over the over the the millennia, right, as being some kind of helper. Um, to consciousnesses who are in human form. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a, a perfect way to to describe uh, really one of the primary, um, you know, responsibilities, shall we say, uh, of the unicorn. Um, it goes back to to this Gnostic text in terms of. Um, I, I thought this was actually quite beautiful when when we found this out that the unicorn. It was given this choice, basically, whether to stay in that higher dimensional reality or if it, if it could pop in when needed to, to see us here. And it chose to come with us, um, you know, when needed and, and, you know, for spiritual elevation and other, uh, you know, more temporal uh, things as well. So, yeah, I think it just kind of it, 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 it kind of um, leads to the point just of, of the unicorn basically being humanity's you know, dare I say best friend? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. No, it's a nice, it's a nice way to think about it. Well, thank, thank you, Alfonso. Thanks for sharing your, um, you know, your story. Uh, really appreciate 
your own journey and um, and your journey to writing this book. Oh, it was an absolute pleasure, Kim, and thank you for uh, having me on your show. I really hope you got some value out of today's episode. If you did, why not leave a positive review on iTunes and share it on social media to help others find it. The tune Seeing Us Out is another one from Axel Tesliff. This one is called Akasha. You can find more information about today's guest on my website, multidimensionalevolution.com, including any links to their work and their contact details. On my website, you'll also find my blog and information and reviews about my book, Multidimensional Evolution which you can purchase in any good bookstore if you want to show your love for this show and get practical info for your own exploration of consciousness. Finally, please get in touch, whether it is to ask questions, share experiences, or suggest guests and topics. I always love hearing from people, as I believe it is through sharing with each other that we can all grow together. Until then, or until you tune in again, I am sending you my very best energies.